0: Good morning. We have a interesting week uh, weekend in light of this week's events in Atlanta. And today we're in the middle of a series that is actually quite long called Christism and Atheism. And uh, I'll explain what that means. But one of the aspects of faith is it gives an objective basis from which to derive your worldview. And this week's events in Atlanta highlight the subject matter today, Whereas you can tell, obviously, if you've been in here a few minutes, the question of evil, the question of evil. And we're glad you're with us today, because, you know, Christianity, before it was a religion, do you know this? Before it was perceived as a religion, was perceived as a philosophy of life. And this is really interesting in light of the fact that it takes a thinking mind to have a rooted faith. Our faith is not rooted in just feeling, but it's rooted in thinking, in a philosophy, a love of the wisdom for us of Christ. And we're glad that you are with us today. Uh, We have a few things that we want you to know about. One is on Mondays at noon, we have a thing called Weekend Hangover where we're able to process the subject matter of the weekend, and then take that into our week. So you can go to Weekend Hangover on Facebook or YouTube. And uh, one of the things I would recommend as you're listening to this today, get your phone out. And uh, as, as you have a question come up, we would love for you to go to hello at southbrook.org and send that question while you're literally listening to me talk about the question of good and evil. It would be great for you to send your question because there may be other people who have a similar question. And when we see that, we say, "Okay, we we, we need to answer this question. We need, we need to make sure that this question gets dealt with." We also want you to know that Easter is coming up in two weeks, and we have an eight a.m. service. That if you can come during that service to help alleviate some possible crowding at the nine thirty and eleven services, then. Uh, We would appreciate that. There is an Easter egg hunt at uh, 8 a.m. So if you're a grown-up person who still acts like a kid and you want to be a part of the Easter egg hunt, no, it's for the kids, dummy, not for you. Um, Also, today is the third Sunday of the month, and on the third Sunday of the month, there are about 50 families right now that we are feeding around the Dayton area with Southbrook Serves. And Southbrook Serves is our initiative to say this gives everyone an opportunity once a month to be a part of either buying food or being a driver to help alleviate hunger in Dayton. And so you'll see a lot of activity out in the atrium. The sign-up for that every month is a week out. A week out, you can sign up for that and be a part of either going and shopping and bringing the food in or delivering it. Today, we need some drivers after the 11 a.m. service. So if you could say, hey, I, I'm available. I could, I could deliver some food. We would love for you to do that for the, for after the 11 a.m. service. One more thing is, you may not know this, but every year we spend about $12,000 doing an intensive external audit. And this is so that we can be totally above board on financial accountability. Look at this slide on the side screens, because I know some of you don't give a, a rip about this, uh, but it's really important that you know this, southbrook.org financial. You can find our audit that was just completed. Our vision team went over it this week, and a really cool thing is that this is just, it is so impressive. But here are a couple of points I want you to be reminded of Southbrook from that our audit from 2020 shows that our community was generous in ways that were hugely impactful hugely impactful during a pandemic Uh, we started city lights we manufactured masks we fed people etc and we did all that without having to make seismic changes or permanent reductions like laying staff off or shutting down ministries permanently And that's rare in the church world in 2020, where upwards of, in the next five years, because of the effect of the pandemic, upwards of 40% of churches could be closing their doors in the United States in the next five years. That's a projection, but the financial impact has been so big. And we managed the generous donations that many of you gave very well we cut spending dramatically across the board so we could better fund our response to the pandemic we got creative in making some things happen and concerning financial details uh, I would I would advise you to uh, look at our cash flow which is on page eight so if you just want to skip to page eight you can do that And all the factors of the pandemic, we ended fiscal year 2020 with a little bit more cash than we began 2020. Isn't that great? And it is, it is. Um, And I just, I can't emphasize enough, Southbrook did more good in 2020 than at any point in our history. So this is how God said, you know, he said to the Israelites, you've trust me, I will cause your shoes not to wear out. Which in that day, they didn't wear, uh, you know, Nike skateboarding shoes. They were wearing pretty flimsy stuff. And he says, I'll, I'll work through you. And this is why we want you to see this. We want you to see the, you know, it's one thing for you to find it. It's another thing for us to say, hey, listen, go to that. Look at, the, look at what God has done through your church, and you are a part of that. If you gave $1 to this mission, if you're ready to be a part of putting your moolah where your mouth is then we would love for you to be a part of that today you can go to the push pay app in your phone and take care of that you can also go out to the box if you have a check or cash that is out there on the welcome counter on the information center and we'd love for you to be a part of that because as you're going to see today as we talk about this there is no greater need than ever in the history of the church for it to overcome evil with good Alexander Solzhenitsyn once said these words, the Russian philosopher, it is considered awkward in these days to seriously use the words such as good and evil. But if we are deprived of these concepts, what will be left? We will decline to the status of animals. And he's right. He was right. He was right when he said that. Long time ago, he was right, he would be right today that when you talk about, as we are in this series, the most important question in humanity does God exist? You're talking about a major implication on our worldview and how we live. Because every time you ask the question, Does God exist? there are going to be two questions that come with that every time. You're eventually going to have someone in the crowd who says, well, how can a good God exist when bad things happen to good people? And along with that, how can a good God exist when there is the presence of such evil as happened in Atlanta, Georgia this week? It is the number one issue people express when it comes to the existence of God. How do you explain evil if there is a good God? And I need you to dig the dullness out of your ears for just a little bit and then know that at the end, all you have to do is when you're having this discussion with someone is remember this object lesson right here. And it may help you have a dialogue with someone. And I'll point to that here in just a minute. A number of years ago, CNN published an article titled Why I Raise My Children Without God. And instantly that article went viral. The author was a young mother named Deborah Mitchell And she listed several reasons why she protected her children from the idea of God. And most of the reasons were variations on the problem of evil. Deborah Mitchell argued that a loving God would never permit murders, child abuse, wars, brutality, torture, and the millions of kinds of heinous acts to be committed throughout the history of mankind. Now, having rejected any answer to the problem of evil rooted in the existence of God, Deb Mitchell offered this as an alternative. She said, my view that I would say would help humanity is a totally materialistic worldview in which human beings are completely predetermined without free will. She said, we are just a very, very small part of a very, very big machine and the influence we have is minuscule. We must accept the insignificance of our reality and surrender to it. Now that seems plausible on the surface. Let me share with you in the next few minutes the implications of that philosophy because you've already seen them in history. How does Ms. Mitchell explain to her children the act that took place in Atlanta this week and the many others? Has she removed the word evil from her children's vocabulary? And if so, what is the implication of that? What do we mean when we talk about evil? And the big question is this one. This is the question to ask at the dinner party when the question comes up, when we're allowed to have dinner parties again. How do you have evil if there's no ultimate good? How do you have evil? How can you have an intellectual discussion about evil? Greg Kukul, the writer, said, we use the word evil and we see things that are not the way they are supposed to be. How do you know? How do you know what's supposed to be? You see, the problem with evil is, is one has to explain an objective goodness measurement to define what evil is. Where is the standard of good that makes evil even a possibility? And this is a major problem with atheism is I can be disappointed, I can be hurt by heinous acts, but I cannot be outraged. Why? Because if there is no transcendent standard of measurement outside the world from which the world derives what good is, then there is no evil. Charles Darwin himself struggled with this dilemma. The way he wiggled out of it, his conclusion was what the society we live in today calls evil is simply animalistic passion. Darwin wrote, evil is simply the gene of violent animals I descended from, and that gene made me do it. Anybody old enough to remember Flip Wilson? The devil made me do it. Not even the devil made you do it. Just your evolutionary, animalistic survival of the fittest instincts made you do it. There is no free choice for human beings. Now, lest you say, well, that's what I was raised on. That seems natural to me. It was natural to Adolf Hitler. That's what was natural to Adolf Hitler. Adolf Hitler rationalized his historic cruelty to millions, and he reasoned, why should I not be crueler than nature itself? Hitler reasoned that nature was inherently cruel, and that there was no reason for him not to unleash this cruelty into the world to eliminate the less desirable, the weaker species. He was simply following the rules of nature. Don't be surprised at his conclusion. He said, if Darwinian evolution is true, then natural selection, and I quote, depends on death, destruction, and violence of the strong against the weak. The eighth grade bully is just living out his animalistic passions. He's not evil. Or we psychologize it by saying, he's just a hurt person hurting others. Well, maybe so because hurt can be evil, but evil is, is always a reflection of some something transcendently gone wrong. Albert Delbanco is a history professor at Columbia University. He says a gulf has opened up in American culture between the visibility of evil and the intellectual resources available for coping with it. In other words, we can't feel our way out of this one just have better feelings. There has to be a transcendent measurement that we aspire to. And he simply tells the story of Franklin Delano Roosevelt during World War II. If you've read your history, Roosevelt and the intellectual lead of that day were very hesitant to embrace that the Holocaust could actually be happening on their watch. Uh, This is just, I don't know that any of us would have been any different, but they dismissed the reports that they were hearing about the possible acts of genocide against millions of Jewish people in Europe and gave no priority to doing anything about it, really. However, late in World War II, after the evidence of the Holocaust became undeniable, FDR was given a book penned by Christian philosopher Soren Kierkegaard. The book after reading it about the problem of evil and man's nature fdr came to this conclusion an understanding of what it is in man that makes it possible to be so evil was my understanding and he he shifted to immediate mode of what man is capable of because there is actual evil that exists now del banco himself is considers himself a secular liberal, and he acknowledged that he and his colleagues have lost all concept of evil. Now, sometimes we wonder, is there hope for this world? And is, is there any way out of this? An atheistic worldview can't be outraged at the problems of evil in our midst, and so really, as long as we can rationalize Things On the basis of survival, we've got a real problem without a transcendent good. Alvin Platingo was a philosophy professor at Un- University of Notre Dame for years, and he said, could there really be any such thing as horrifying wickedness if there is no God and we just evolved? If you think there really is such a thing as horrifying as wickedness, and it's not just an illusion of some sort, then you have a powerful argument. Let me just read that again. If you think there really is wickedness, does anybody think, does any rational person think that what happened in Atlanta this week is is, was evil? A, A rational person says that wasn't just a function of some psychological quirk. This was evil. And he said, if you think that there was wickedness going on there and not just an illusion, you have a powerful argument for the reality of God a powerful argument for the reality of God. Do you know what the most famous criminal case of the 20th century early on was? Some of you maybe have read this. It was the Loeb Leopold case in the early part of the 20th century in which a 17 and 18 year old boy were on trial for heinous acts against a young boy in their neighborhood. I won't list the acts, but but Richard Loeb was, was obsessed with committing the perfect crime. His partner in this Uh, crime leopold was committed to harvard university attending there they were both very brilliant young men very wealthy families and they created what they thought was the perfect crime against a young boy in their neighborhood they were eventually caught they were put on trial and their defense lawyer was clarence darrow some of you may remember now, Loeb and Leopold both had been influenced by the philosophy of nihilist Friedrich Nietzsche. I'll come to him and his more historical connection in a moment. And because their families were wealthy, they were put on trial, Clarence Darrow was able to present an argument that prevented them from being given the death sentence, even though what they did to that young boy was awful. It was terrible. It was the worst of humanity. Because Clance Darrow's argument was simply this. Is there any blame attached to someone who took Nietzsche's philosophy seriously and fashioned his life on it? Your Honor, it is hardly fair to hang a 19-year-old boy for the philosophy that was taught him at the university. He, he, He was saying, you can't execute these young men for following the rules of the land, the teaching that they received. They simply followed the godless worldview of Friedrich Nietzsche. That it is simply all about the survival of the fittest. Guess what other 20th century historical figure was strongly influenced by the writings of Nietzsche? Which one do you think? I've already mentioned him in the service. Hint, hint. Adolf Hitler. Adolf Hitler was extremely influenced, profoundly, and he believed the survival of the fittest is a fact of nature, and Hitler was simply consistent with that fact, as Loeb and Leopold were as well. Now, I know that there may be some of you here who, who right now are leaning toward atheism. It's a real interesting thing going on. I had a, one of our student pastors said to me, he says, you know, it's a real interesting deal. We've got, we've got teenagers in third world countries who are have nothing and they have this strong faith in God, and yet now we have students in our country who during the pandemic, because they've been isolated and haven't been able to go out with their friends, are becoming atheists. <laughs> I really, really? I mean it's crazy. And you may say, okay, this offends me, because you're essentially saying an atheist can't really know what evil is and therefore an atheist can't be a moral person no i am not saying that i'm not saying an atheist can't be a moral person what i'm saying is an atheist does not have an objective point of reference from which to derive their moral reality there's no objective point it's it's all whims and votes it's 51% morality an atheist cannot rationally defend ultimate good, and if you can't defend transcendent ultimate good, then you can't rationally defend what is evil. Do, do, I would ask you, do you have an objective point of reference? Now, when you ask someone who's an atheist that often, you'll get, yeah, I think I have an objective point of reference, self-preservation. Okay, self-preservation. What if your neighbor thinks that in order for him to be preserved, he has to eliminate you? What if his self-preservation says, I need you to go away. You're a bad neighbor. And your answer might be, well, we have laws for that. Well, where do we get those laws? Where do we get those laws? Where do we derive the laws of the land? And you might say, let me think about that. Because this is the conundrum of atheism. What's the transcendent law from which by revelation we are? we understand moral law. We don't create moral law. We we understand that there is a divine moral law that was imprinted upon humanity that says this is good and this is evil. And Hitler's Germany produced a propaganda film that was produced and shown in movie theaters in Germany before World War II. And there's a psychiatric institution With a narrator who says, wherever fate puts us, whatever station we must occupy, only the strong will prevail in the end. Everything in the natural world that is weak for life will inevitably be destroyed. In the last few decades, mankind has sinned terribly. Against what? Against the law of natural selection. By helping the weak. We've sinned against the law of natural selection. We haven't just maintained life unworthy of life. We've even allowed it to multiply. The descendants of these sick people look like this. And it showed the very people who would be annihilated. Three years after the release of that film in German movie theaters, German mental institutions began began gassing to death thousands of innocent patients. Why? It's because apart from a transcendent lawgiver from which morality is derived, there is no basis objectively for moral law. There is no standard of this is good and this is evil. When the Nazis were eventually put on trial in Nuremberg for their atrocities against humanity, the chief prosecutor on behalf of the United States was Robert H. Jackson, who appealed to a permanent transcendent value and law system that was from the ultimate lawgiver. He said, a system of ethics must point beyond itself. It must point to be, it has to be to be transcendental. Its basis cannot rest within the finite world. Otherwise, how could one in good faith say that Nazis were wrong in their deductions? High school students, you're going to go off to college and your faith is going to be mocked. It's going to be mocked. And I have good news. Because today, I went into Kroger, and I got some water. Anybody else get any water at Kroger, their local friendly Kroger? And I picked up a gallon of water. Does that create any cognitive dissonance with anyone? Oh, okay, I picked up a gallon of water. Anybody here still cognitively dissonant? Let me hear the applause. I picked up a gallon of water. Right? Now, how do I know what a gallon is? Why can't I say, well, oh, this is a gallon to me. Why can't I say that? Let's say that today you drive into your Kroger and you you go, to, let's say you go to the one in Centerville. And I stopped there to get gasoline this morning as well. And I pull up in there and, and I pump my, truck full of gasoline and i know it only holds 20 gallons but it it says at 250 a pop 30 gallons i pumped into my truck and i go to the you know to the person behind the little cubicle and i say hey my truck only holds 20 gallons how how, how can you say that i pumped 30 gallons and 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 she holds up a letter that says i got a letter from the president of the company that says from now on a gallon of gasoline at your local friendly neighborhood Kroger will be two thirds the size of a regular gallon. Now, what do you think my reaction to that ought to be? You can't do that you're that's you're scamming people. Why? Why? Because I can feel what a gallon is this This doesn't feel. A, you know, this, is, this doesn't feel. No, why? Because in Washington, D.C., there is a standard of weights and measures that says this is what a gallon is. And I don't have the freedom to say, well, this just feels like a gallon to me. Because the downward spiral of that. Think about if on our highways we didn't have rules. We just said, drive like you feel like it. I have the safe driver discount. Anybody else have that? So I've got that little thing in my windshield that is the God of insurance policing me constantly. I My sister-in-law is my agent. And I feel like when I go 36 and a 35, Kelly Graham is going, Charlie McMahon, you evil person. You're breaking your safe driver discount, right? because there's this, there's this thing that I'm accountable to now. It's really made me a better driver. Anybody else have one of those? I'm just a better driver. I still, I still give, you know, they give you five, I take two more, but I, you know, I, I still push it a little bit, but I have, this, I have this accountability that has made me better. Why? Because there's a, there's a transcendental law that says this is 35 degree, uh, 35 miles per hour. This is why we call it. What do we call the highway system with all these rules that say you can't go north in the southbound line? What do we call that? a freeway that's what we call that don't we and when that law is broken there's trouble there's trouble i have good news matthew 28:18 look it up he rose from the dead and when he did some of the first words out of his mouth as he said all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me i have the standard of what is good and what is evil. And I understand some of the complexities of deriving good and evil still don't, they don't just necessarily end there. But there is one we believe has that authority to say, no, that's out of bounds, that's wrong. And to understand a number of other things, that the line between good and evil does not pass through out there. It passes through my heart. That when our faith based on Christ and the writings of his friends say things like, the the good I want to do I don't always do, but the evil I don't want to do, this I keep on doing. I am hopeless. I am helpless. What's going to save me? Thanks be to God. He gives me the victory through Jesus Christ our Lord. That there is a way that not only, no, that's evil. I can call a spade a spade, but to have the power and the grace and the love fueling my soul that I don't have to become evil to overcome evil, which is what usually happens. Watch out, because when you try to eliminate evil, you end up usually becoming the evil you wish to eliminate. But no, I can overcome evil, how? With good this is the hope that I live with. Romans 12, 17. Don't repay anyone evil for evil. There is evil. And don't, don't, no, 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 no. Somebody cuts you off in traffic. You don't repay evil for evil. You know? <laughs> you thought I was going to do it, didn't you? You know your evil minds. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Don't take revenge, my friends. Leave room for God's work, God's wrath. It is mine to avenge, I'll repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, t- tell me if this is not what our world needs. Right here, right here. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. That wasn't a, yeah, you're really getting at him passive aggressively. And that day, if someone needed heat in their house, they might come to you with a basket on their head, and they would, they would, they, you, would, you would put coals in that basket, and, and you would heap them on their head as, a, as, as, a, as an expression of generosity. And he says, "Be, be, be how do you overcome evil? Is you overcome evil. Look at this, verse 21, don't be overcome by evil. Overcome evil with good. And Christ not only gives us what that is, He gives us the power to be the people who aren't giving people the finger in traffic. It's amazing. It's beyond an external, I've got to submit to the law. It is the law written where? On our hearts. We don't submit to it because we have to. We submit to it because we are full of his love. I was reading this week some notes of mine. In 1995, a very impressive young lady who at the time was 10 years of age, Ashley Danielle Oubre, delivered a memorable speech that brought the audience at the 1995 prayer breakfast to its feet two times. Her brief speech as a 10 year old at the prayer breakfast in Washington DC read as follows. Good morning, esteemed guests, platform guests, ladies and gentlemen, I appreciate this opportunity to speak to the leadership of this great city in the world on behalf of the children. I wondered what I would say to you when I was first asked if I would make a presentation being young limits the experience you, mo- you have in most areas, but I'm experienced in being a child. And Jesus said, unless you become like a child, you cannot enter the kingdom of God, the rule of God. Unless you become like a child, what he was saying when he said that was, you won't surrender to God's rule over your life as transcendent author of good. She said, when I think about my friends who are all young people like myself, many things come to mind. If you would like to be a child in God's kingdom, I will share some of what we think about and do. Children play together, have lots of fun, and sometimes fight. But the very next day, we make up and we play again. Wouldn't it be wonderful if mothers and fathers, sisters and brothers, neighbors and our leaders would be more that way? It hurts us when we see you fighting and not making up. When you tell us something, we believe it and we don't ask many questions. We have faith and trust in you until we grow up and find it's really not that way with adults. I think you tell us Bible stories because we are children, but the Bible stories do us a lot of good. However, you don't tell each other Bible stories. Are they only good for children? You teach us that when we have a problem, we should take it out with others. And with Jesus, you say that we should pray about it and keep our hearts right for Jesus. You say that Jesus can solve all of our problems, both big and small, but we notice when people get older and have problems, they're embarrassed to talk like that among themselves. We wonder if you really mean it, or is Jesus only for kids? I'm still young enough to believe that Jesus knows how to solve my problems, the problems of the city, the problems of our country, the problems of our world, and I hope I never grow old enough to stop believing that all of you can become like children in search of Jesus' kingdom. Thank you very much for listening to me. And may God bless you all. And all of those big people stood to their feet and applauded. Because you know what? I still believe it today to the core of my being. Jesus reigns above it all. He is our hope, not just to know what is good and evil as our authority, but if you will surrender your life to him completely, he will give you the power to not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Would you stand with us now as we sing together about this Jesus?